Episode 51, Journey Has Begun. The journey has begun. The Israelites have made it to the point where they are ready to travel to the promised land. However, it doesn't take much for the people to complain and wish that they were once again back in slavery in Egypt. Welcome to the History of the Bible. In the last episode, we talked about the responsibility that was given to the tribe of Levi to host the presence of God. That their curse that was given to them from Jacob had been redeemed so that they were now the tribe that led the other tribes spiritually. Now that the tribes have been separated into their marching groups, including the Levites, it's time to begin moving towards the land that had been promised. Unfortunately, it would not be a straight shot, physically as well as far as difficulty in getting there. Now, before we get into the journey of the Israelites to the Promised Land, let's talk about the Nazarite vow. This vow is given to the Israelites right before they leave. The Nazarite vow is taken by individuals who voluntarily dedicate themselves to the Lord. The root Hebrew word is Nazir which simply means to be separated or consecrated. This vow has four parts to it. The first is that it is completely voluntary, allowing for men, women, and slaves to all participate in the vow. Because it is voluntary, usually it's individuals taking the vow, so it wouldn't be groups or families taking it. The second part of the vow is that men and women can take the vow, Although, if a woman took the vow, it can be rescinded by her father if she lives with her father, or her husband if she was married and living with him. Third, the vow had a specific time frame. Although there are three people in the Bible that we see that took the Nazarite vow, Samuel, Samson in the Old Testament, and John the Baptist in the New Testament. However, the Bible does say that it is to be a set period of time that a person would be under the vow. The fourth part of the vow is that there is a specific guidelines for the vow. No wine or fermented drinks, such as the vinegar from the wine or any strong drink. Often the word used for any strong drink referred to beer. This was another common beverage that was known to the Mesopotamian region, as well as Egypt. Mostly made out of barley, the other thing that it could be translated to mean is a grape byproduct that is something like brandy. These drinks' alcohol content could range anywhere from 20 to 60%. Nothing from the grapevine, juice, whole grapes, or raisins was the person allowed to have. Also, the person was not allowed to cut the hair on their head. This too would go against social norms. In the Mesopotamia and Mediterranean regions, hair played a role in legal practices. Often, when someone was being punished or being public shamed, their head would be shaved. Lastly, the person is not allowed to touch any dead body. This included family members. Once the time period had been completed by the person, they would bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle and their hair would be cut at the entrance and place the hair on the fire with the sacrifice. 
Once this was completed, the person was free to go and was allowed to drink wine thereafter. The time period for the vow could last anywhere from one hour to a lifetime. However, usually the period of the vow was around a month long. Now, why would someone want to take this vow? Besides dedicating themselves more wholly to the Lord, a lot of the time it was done by those that were under distress, as they would take the vow 30 days before the time of sacrifice came. Others would take it as a fulfillment of a desire, such as the birth of a child, while others did it just to be more focused on the Lord. So now that we have talked about the Nazarite vow, let's continue with the Israelites' journey. Before the Israelites left Mount Sinai to begin their journey to the Promised Land, it was time to do the second Passover. That means that it had been a full year since the Israelites had left Egypt. They had already been out in the wilderness that whole time during the year. The Passover was celebrated as it was set up the year previous. It was to be done from generation to generation. However, they already came across an issue. When the second Passover was to be celebrated, some men came to Moses to ask if they were excluded from the celebration because they had touched a dead body, which would make them ceremoniously unclean. The Lord came back to tell Moses that if a person was unclean and was on a long journey, they would be able to make up their celebration of the Passover the following month on the same day of the month, the 14th. Now, it is finally time for the Israelites to head to the Promised Land. The moment had come for them to take what had been promised to their forefathers, or had it. When the Israelites set out from Mount Sinai, they were led by the Lord with the cloud during the daytime, and fire by night. When the cloud moved, the people would pack up their things and move. Sometimes the cloud stayed just for the night while the Israelites camped. Other times, it could stay in the same place for the whole month. But no matter what, they followed the Lord through the cloud, listening to his command for when to move or when to stay. So to help the Israelites know when to move or stay, the Lord told Moses to make two silver trumpets. These trumpets would be used to signal all the tribes. When both were blown, it meant that the Israelites were to gather together in front of the tabernacle. One trumpet being blown meant only for the heads of the tribes to gather. To get the camp to move out in a specific way, the trumpets were used to sound an alarm. So one type of an alarm would call for the tribes to the east to begin setting out and all other tribes would follow. The same alarm could be blown for a second time to indicate that the tribes that were on the south side were to move out first. The trumpets were to be made up of hammered work, the same type of work that used to make the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. It's believed that the silver trumpets were anywhere from 12 inches to about 20 inches or about 2 feet. The ends of the trumpet would be flared out like a bell on one side to create the traditional look of a trumpet. Some say that most likely the trumpets were made in two different sizes so that different pitches of sound would be heard from each one. Although the way the trumpets were blown isn't fully known, 
Jewish tradition holds that to gather the people together, or just the leaders of the tribes, the trumpets were blown in a single long note, whereas the sound for the tribes to move out would be three short blasts of the trumpet. The trumpets were mainly used for gathering and preparing the camp to move. However, it would be used for other things as well. Throughout the ancient Middle East, these type of trumpets were used for battles, and the Israelites used them as well. The Lord told the Israelites that when they go out to battle, they were to sound the alarm with the trumpets. It says in Numbers 10 verse 9 that the trumpets were to be blown so that they would be remembered before the Lord, your God. This is believed to be a sort of prayer to God. Whenever the Israelites went out to battle, the trumpet was blown as a prayer to the Lord, asking him to go before them in battle. Lastly, the trumpets were used for the day of gladness, appointed feast, and over the burnt and peace offerings. The day of gladness would most likely be the days that victory was won in battles, but also the opening days of feasts. The blowing of the trumpets was to be done throughout all the generations of Israel as a means to remember the Lord as they gathered together, moved camp, prepared for battle, or celebrated. It was always to be done, but could only be done by Aaron and his descendants. No one else was allowed to blow the trumpets. Now that the Israelites had a means to communicate through signaling of the trumpets, it was finally time to move away from Mount Sinai and towards the promised land. It had been 11 months and 5 days since the Israelites got to Mount Sinai. This is the first time that the Israelites get to practice moving out in groups of tribes, as well as the Levites taking down and carrying the tabernacle. When the Israelites leave Mount Sinai, Moses reaches out to his brother-in-law, Hobab, asking if he would be willing to come with the Israelites to be a guide for them while in the wilderness. At first, his brother-in-law declines the offer, saying that he must go back to his own land. Although there are many scholars that believe that Hobab was not Moses' brother-in-law, but that it was actually his father-in-law. As the Hebrew word used for in-law is any male related by marriage. However, in Numbers 10 verse 29, it says that Hobab was the son of Raul who was Moses' father-in-law. Raul has been found to be a secondary name of Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law. In Judges 4, verse 11, it says that Hobab was the father-in-law of Moses. More than likely, it would have been Moses' brother-in-law. Although it isn't for sure who Hobab is, he is related to Moses through marriage. And though Moses asked him to stay with the Israelites to be a guide, it would make more sense if Moses asked his brother-in-law to be a guide rather than his father-in-law. The next question is, did Hobab go with Moses? And why would Moses need a man as a guide in the desert when the Lord was leading them with a cloud during the day? Again, at first, he declined Moses' offer. However, Moses continued to press in by saying that whatever good comes to the Israelites, it would come upon him as well. Some scholars say that he did, because in Judges 1 verse 16, it mentions the Kenites, who were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, traveled with them into the wilderness of Judah.
They settled among the people there. So it seems that Hobab did end up going with the Israelites. But why would Moses need him to be a guide? Although the Lord did lead the direction for which the Israelites were to march and where to camp, using the cloud by day and fire by night. Having a guide there who was familiar with the deserts and the wilderness would be able to point out the best places to camp and where to set the herds of the animals to graze when the cloud of the Lord settled. When the Israelites leave Mount Sinai, the cloud of the Lord is over them and guiding them in the direction that they should go. Something to show how much the Lord provided for the Israelites during their journey is the cloud and fire. During the daytime in the desert, the heat and sun is very hot. Often people in the desert travel at night to avoid the heat. However, the Lord provided shade during their travels in the desert to protect them from the heat. On the flip side, the deserts can get to a very cold temperature during the nighttime. Thus, the fire that the Lord provided the Israelites during the nighttime would actually keep them warm from sometimes freezing temperatures. The first leg of the journey began with a three-day journey, where the Israelites stayed longer than one night in a single place. The journey is believed to have been about 35 to 45 miles in distance. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant was picked up to be moved, Moses would say, Arise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the Ark of the Covenant would stop and set down for the camp to be made, Moses would say, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Even though the journey was three days, when the Israelites got to the resting place, they couldn't help but complain because of their hardship. Therefore, God uses a fire on the outskirts of the camp to correct the Israelites. Thus, the place where the fire comes upon the Israelites is called Kavera. This name means burning. However, this name is often used when fiery judgment came through the means of lightning. Although it isn't sure how the fire started, it's thought that the fire was started by lightning. In ancient times, many societies already believed that lightning strikes were considered to be acts of the divine. However, the people cried out to Moses, and then Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down, removing the threat of the fire coming into the camp. You would think that because of what the Israelites had seen, been part of, and just had been saved from, that they would have learned to trust God and to know that He would provide for them. But this is definitely not the last time the Israelites would complain. It says that in Numbers 11, verse 4, that the rabble who were among the Israelites craved other foods. The word rabble here is used only once in the Bible, but it is related to the word used in Exodus 12, verse 38, where it says that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt with Israel. This mixed crowd of non-Israeli people got the Israelites themselves to long for what they used to have. They began remembering and longing to be back in Egypt where they used to eat meat, fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now, they just had this bland food called manna. Manna was an interesting food. The Hebrew word translated to mean manna actually means, what is it? 
So even the Israelites that ate the stuff had no idea what it was. All that the Bible says about the manna is that it was like coriander seed, white, and tasted like wafers made with honey, and that it looked like delium or risen, and that it was grain from heaven, and that it was the bread of angels. This brings up the question, was manna some sort of bread, or was it a grain that could be made into bread? If we look at what the Bible said of manna, it says that it was like coriander seed, which is about three to five millimeters, or one-eighth of an inch to three-sixteenth of an inch. This is a seasoning that is used in modern-day cooking. However, the Bible also says that it was the bread of angels, but also the grain of heaven in Psalm 78, verses 24 and 25. So what was it? Bread or grain? There's a thought held by the Jewish tradition the manna fell in three tiers, each one with a different level of readiness. The first tier would have been bread that was ready to be eaten. This is thought to have fallen for the righteous right outside of their tent. Thus, it would make gathering food rather easy for them. The second tier is thought to be for the average person. This tier of manna would fall outside of camp and would not be ready to be eaten. Rather, it was still needing to be cooked, and then it could be consumed. The third tier was for the wicked in the camp. In order for them to get their food, they had to travel far outside of camp to gather, not bread, but grain that was used to make the manna into bread. In this form, those that were wicked had to grind up their manna grain into flour that could be used to make the manna cakes. The same cakes that the righteous got delivered to their tent and cooked and ready to go, and the same cakes that the average person got, but just not cooked. Now, whether or not this thought held through the tradition is true, it would explain the Bible describes manna as being both a grain and a bread that the Israelites ate. But it does say in Numbers 11, verse 8, that the people went and gathered manna, and ground it up in handmills, boiled it in pots, or beat it in mortars to make cakes out of it that taste like cakes baked with oil and that of honey wafers. That would mean that the manna was not bread at all, but rather a grain that was used to make cakes. Although some scholars believe that the meaning of like a coriander seed is related to the taste, not the looks of the grain, as coriander is used in a lot of Mediterranean dishes for seasoning. Other scholars that want to naturally describe the manna believe that the grain comes from the seeds of the tamarisk trees that are found in the region Israel was journeying through. However, even with this natural explanation, the tamarisk trees only produce a couple months of the year and not nearly enough to feed the Israelites their daily portion. This was an act of God. So this is what the Israelites had to eat. And this is why those that were not of Jacob's descendants got the Israelites to complain of the manna that the Lord was feeding them. Therefore, the Lord would send quail for the people to eat. But the Lord said that it wasn't going to be enough for a meal or two. No, these people would eat so much quail that they would come to hate the bird and its meat. It says in Numbers 11 verse 31 that there came a wind from the sea that brought quail. 
Most likely, this wind came from the Arabian Gulf, as it says in Psalm 78, verse 26, that the wind came from the southeast. The wind that brought the quail was about a day's journey from the camp of the Israelites in all directions. Some translations say that the quail were all around the camp spread out in all directions for about a day's journey, rather than a day's journey away. This thought would be more aligned with what Psalm 78 verse 28 says, that the Lord let the birds fall into the midst of the camp. Therefore, it might be that instead of the Israelites having to travel a day's journey away to get the birds, they would gather quail up to a day's journey away in all directions. Now, that's a lot of birds. A day's journey in all directions would be about 400 square miles of birds. It says that the quail were two cubits above the ground. Some believe that there were piles of quail that high throughout the land, and that the Israelites would be able to get the birds from. However, most scholars believe that the two cubits, or about two to three feet, meant the height at which the birds were flying at. This would make it a lot easier for the birds to be caught by the Israelites and gathered for food. The Israelites gathered for a whole day, the whole night, and the whole next day gathering quail for food. Everyone gathered quail for food. The least amount of quail gathered for a person is believed to be around 400 and 480 dry gallons, or around 18 to 2200 liters. The Israelites then took the meat that couldn't be all eaten and hung it around camp. Most likely they were doing this to dry them out and preserve them so that they can be eaten at another time. This would have been a practice that they learned from the Egyptians in drying fish with salt. This practice of catching quail is not new. It's believed that because the quail were flying so close to the ground that they used low-slung nets that could be used to catch the birds. This practice of using nets has been discovered to be described on many ancient Egyptian tombs. As for the quail, throughout history, writers have described the migration of the birds across the Sinai area. Local Arabs from this area have caught anywhere from one to two million quails in a single migration. So though they're only three days into the journey of leaving Sinai, the Israelites are already complaining about the situation, but things only seem to get worse. Yes, the Israelites wanted more than just manna, so the Lord gave it to them. They got quail, enough quail to last them a whole month. However, join us next time as we'll see the consequences of their greed and desire to go back to Egypt just for food, along with the challenges to Moses' authority in episode 52, sibling rivalry. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.